Look, look with me at Matthew 20, verse 16. If you don't have a Bible in, in the uh, chair in front of you, there's a little pocket. And we're going to start on page 487, Matthew 28, verse 16. And this is what we read. Now the eleven disciples, remember there were eleven because Judas had betrayed Jesus and at this point had committed suicide. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, embrace yourself. Jesus said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. You can go home right now. That's all you need to know to have perfect peace. All authority has been given to Jesus. Not just in the sweet by and by, but in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. He says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Thus says God's Word. Praise God. <clears throat> now, if I were to show up this morning at Northridge Life Church, and, and I didn't know anything about God, I didn't know anything about the Bible, I didn't know anything about the church, I, I knew nothing about any of those things, and I came in here trying to figure all this out, and I and I asked the question, I asked several of you, maybe milling around in the foyer, I asked you this question, I said, what is the mission of the church? Would I, this is my question to you, would I find among us a clear, unifying answer to that question? There are several problems that I can imagine that I would encounter in, in the responses I would give to that question. First, some I talk to might not have a clue what the mission of this church or any other church might be. Or, and they may have no idea where to find out the answer to that question. Others might assume that they know, but they have strongly held opinions of what the church would be doing based not on scripture or direction, but <coughs> on some preferred pet doctrine like the imminent end of the world or the use of spiritual gifts or some favorite worship style, etc. Some might say something that sounds noble or spiritual like, our mission is reaching the lost or our mission is transforming culture. But, but what if I were to fire back? Great! How are we doing at that? We might be forced into some kind of stupefied silence by our own ineffectiveness, or worse yet, our inactivity. Still others might differ on the most basic definition of words like mission, or words like church. Others might wonder if it's even possible to know the answer to that question, or for the church of so many diverse people to agree upon the answer to that question. But I've got good news for you. How many of you are ready for some good news? Yeah. Jesus never intended us to be in the dark on the answer to that question. He wanted us to know that there is an answer to the question, what is the mission of the church? The passage we read a moment ago in Matthew 20 gave us one version of the final words spoken by Jesus after his crucifixion, after his resurrection, and right before he ascended to his throne at the right hand of the Father. 
Christians over the years have called this passage the Great Commission. Because it represents marching orders that Jesus committed to his followers. The commission that he expected them to fulfill. This passage in Matthew 28 is not the only version of these words in the New Testament. You'll find similar versions in Matthew and Mark, Luke and John, and even the book of Acts. The shortest version of, of these directed, this directive is found in John 20, 21, where Jesus says to his disciples after his resurrection, he says, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Now everyone knows that a person's last words are significant. Oftentimes when somebody famous dies, they say, what were his last words? Sometimes last words reflect a buoyant sense of humor. When the comic legend Groucho Marx was dying, he reportedly said, well, this is no way to live. <laughs> last words are often profound. Winston Churchill, who had accomplished so much in life, was quoted as saying at the end, bored with it all. <laughs> Nothing else to do. Sometimes last words are incredibly clever and well thought out. The murderer, James W. Rogers, was put in front of a firing squad in Utah and asked if he had any last request. And he said, yes, someone bring me a bulletproof vest. <laughs> but the last words of Jesus are significant in entirely different ways. For one thing, they're not, in one sense, conclusive. See, what I mean by that is that Jesus was neither reflecting on his finished life, nor was he being poetic or clever, because unlike other men, Jesus was not headed for the cold ground to await the resurrection at the last day. Jesus was alive. Jesus was alive. He was resurrected. He was glorified. And he was going in just a matter of minutes to his eternal throne where he sits at the right hand of the Father even now making intercession for you and I. Aren't you glad? So his last words were important because they were his final instructions given to his followers. They were his orders to his troops. And in 2,000 years, don't forget this, in 2,000 years, he has never altered or added to his orders. And he still expects us to carry them out. Jesus still expects us to be doing what he told us to do at the very end. So the question that arises this morning is, what implication does Christ's great commission have for Northridge Life Church? In other words, do you and I have any responsibility to participate in the fulfilling of the mission of Jesus Christ's church? And if we do, what is our responsibility? Well, let's answer these questions by returning to the Great Commission in Matthew 28 that we just read and breaking it down. Now, the first thing, I, I commented on this when we read through it. The first thing that you'll notice is in verse 18 that Jesus makes this announcement that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. Now, let me illustrate this, what this means and how it should affect us as believers from a meme I saw on Facebook. Now, many people posted this meme. So if you did, I'm not attacking you. I'm not, I'm just saying I want you to kind of see the error of this, in, in my opinion. I see this meme on Facebook after the shootings in Florida and it, it, the, the, the meme has God asking the question, or someone asking God the question rather, why do you allow violence in school? 
To which God replies, I'm not allowed in schools. Now this sounds logical. It sounds like it makes sense for us to have this cinema because the Supreme Court banned prayer in public schools in 1962, as you guys are well aware. But the problem with this thinking it's really interesting. I didn't know even this. Pastor David quoted the scripture earlier. The problem with this thinking, though, is that the Bible says in Psalm 115 that God is in heaven and he does whatever he pleases. Yes. So you don't lock God out of anywhere. Right. Come on. I need y'all to wake up this morning. You do not lock the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords out of anywhere. You don't do it. He does whatever he pleases. He is sovereign. No one tells God where he can and cannot go. The problem is not, listen to me, the problem is not God's access to schools. The problem is not God's access to schools. Remember, Jesus Christ has, by his own declaration, all authority. In heaven and on earth, over every government, over every school, over every church, and over every family. All authority with a capital A has been given to me, Christ says, in both heaven and on earth. Now, what portion of authority has not been given to him? Come on, help me out. What portion of authority has not been given to Jesus Christ? He has all authority. Some people may think they can sidestep his will, sidestep his justice, but they are going to find themselves sorely mistaken on a day very soon. So if the problem is not with God, who is it with? The problem must absolutely lie firmly in the hands of his Oh, yeah. Well, when you showed up this morning, I knew you were going to beat us up. What's the truth? What does that mean? It means that if you want prayer in your school, young people, or if you want prayer in your kids' school, mom and dad, pray in the school! Pray in the school. Pray for the school. Pray around the school. Cover that in prayer. One of the things that we are committed to do in this church is to build a relationship with that school right there and tell them that we're praying for them constantly. They may say, well, you're not allowed to do that. And I'll say, try and stop me. (laughs) We are the people of God. We serve the one whom all authority has been granted to. No one can stop you from communicating with the Father. No one can. Quite frankly, saying that the government will let you pray is a cop-out. Don't say it anymore. The government cannot take away a right from you that they did not give you. That's right. Come on. Well, they're not teaching my kid to pray. They're not leading them in prayer like they did in 1961. Newsflash. That is not their job. It is your job, mom and dad. All authority, power, and the right to proclaim the message of Christ is rooted not in us, not in our government, but in the authority of Christ. 
When you're doing what he commanded you to do, you can rest assured that his authority is there backing you up. This is why Matthew 28 says, Go, therefore, all authority is mine. Go, therefore. What he's saying is, I have all authority. Therefore, you can go confidently where I send you, doing what I've commanded. Why? Because I have all authority. But go, he says, go, therefore, go, is a kinetic word. It, it implies movement and action. Unfortunately, though, most ministry in America is based on saying, hey, come and see. Come take a look. We'll, we'll make everything comfortable and nice for you. We make our church services as appealing as they can be in order to make the reaching of the lost easier. But let me warn you with these words. An easygoing, comfortable, catering church produces easygoing, comfortable Christians who are no threat and demand to be catered to. Amen. As an example of this misguided thinking, I often hear sincere, well-meaning believers pray that the Holy Spirit would draw people into our church by some irresistible force as they simply drive by the building on the walk. But as nice as this sounds, and I'm sure that by grace it's happened on occasion, this is not the biblical method for sharing Jesus. <laughs> Jesus didn't say, now hunger down in your church and pray that somebody would irresistibly be drawn in. We are not to somehow hope and wish them in. The Bible is clear that we're to go out and get them. Amen. The phrase, go and make disciples in Matthew 28, indicates that some kind of going is necessary to the goal of making disciples. And I think this means to go actively with God-glorifying, kingdom-prioritized intention. But where exactly do we go? Do we go to Zimbabwe? Do we go to Bulgaria? Well, maybe. But how about starting by just going where you're already going anyway, to school, to work, to your neighborhood. But when you go, go not for the reasons you normally go, but go primarily for the purposes of Christ. This means going to work and school in your neighborhood prayerfully and intentionally in the hope of an opportunity for, to proclaim Christ's message and make disciples. And let me tell you something, that mindset absolutely trumps punching the clock. Amen. Absolutely trumps it. However, this sometimes strikes us as believers, let's get real here, as a daunting or intimidating task. And I want to be real clear, I am not unsympathetic to that. Not at all. It's one of the things that I regret most is that I don't, uh, is that I miss multiple opportunities to share the good news of the gospel with people who need to hear it. I feel this too, this, this intimidation, this, this sense of daunting, uh, you know, <coughs> mission. <coughs> Why do we feel this way? Let's get real with each other. Why do we feel this way? We should all love Jesus, right? Do you love Jesus this morning? Yes. Why then do we hesitate to speak openly of him? Name one other thing, I dare you, name one other thing that you treasure that you're intimidated to speak openly about. Help me now. Name just one, just one thing. Are you ashamed to speak about your spouse or kids? Are you ashamed to speak of some treasure that you acquire, your, your favorite sports team, your hobby? 
Why then are we afraid to talk about Christ who should be our highest treasure and what he's done in and for us? Maybe the reason, I know this is true of a lot of us, maybe the reason is that we think there's some right way, some method, some sales pitch, some, some you know, kind of you know, accepted methodology that preachers might know about to bring him up and talk about him in conversation, some method or formula to follow. And because of that, we really don't want to mess it up. But I want talking, I'm speaking personally now, I hope it's true for you as well, I want talking about Jesus to be my public default setting. I don't want you to know me for five minutes without knowing what I treasure. Not for five minutes. I want to point to him with my life and my words organically and not in some forced or scripted way. I want to show others what my greatest treasure is. Amen. I figure that if you talk about Jesus simply because you love Jesus, listen to me, you can't mess that up. That's good. That's right. You don't have to have all the properly worded theological answers. What you need is just a story about how he changed your life. Amen. Sometimes we don't talk about Jesus because we're fearful of being ridiculed as some kind of narrow-minded religious freak. I think the best way out of this trap is to engage in a renewed lifestyle of worship. And when I'm talking about a lifestyle of worship, I'm not talking about what you do for 30 minutes on Sunday morning in this room. I'm talking about a lifestyle that, that pours itself into the, the, the constant acknowledgement of Christ's love for you and the effect it has on you to love Him back. Constantly. In the morning. Yeah, even on Mondays. In the morning. At night. Lunchtime. On the weekend. Throughout all the activities of your day, to live in a lifestyle of worship. See, because the more you love someone, the more often and more naturally you'll speak of them. Do you remember when you first fell for your spouse? Do you remember that? You didn't talk about nothing else. Nothing. Everyone around you was sick of hearing about it. You couldn't talk about anything else. But so many of us, listen to me, so many of us, only have the thrill of romance with Jesus on a Sunday morning. So it's kind of like an occasional date night when a marriage has gone cold. There's no top of mind awareness as the one whom the old hymn calls the lover of our soul. We're warned about this. In Revelation chapter 2, Christ tells the church at Ephesus, He says, But I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, where you've fallen and repent and do the works you did at first. Do you remember? Do you remember what it was like when you first met Jesus and you couldn't keep your mouth shut about Jesus? Go back. If you struggle in any of these areas, because I know I do, tell God to give you the desire and the opportunity to be a shining light for His glory and, and, and to infuse you with boldness. This may blow your mind that those, those heroes of the faith in the first century in the book of Acts, even Jesus' own apostles prayed for boldness in Acts chapter 4. Did you know that? They prayed that God would give them boldness and God answered that prayer by shaking the house where they were. 
But others, there's a whole other category. Others won't speak boldly about Jesus because the truth of the matter is they have no real relationship. They may go to church, they may accessorize their lives with religious talk and the appearance of morality. They may even pray the prayer with a preacher for a little fire insurance. But Jesus, like we saying this morning, is not the air they breathe. Jesus is not the one that they live by. They don't live by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. People like these will never impact the world around them. Your Christianity, if you can call it that, is just a selfish kind of you-centered thing that never impacts anything. You simply aren't connected to God's heart. You, you have your own business to take care of. And you can't be bothered by the lost state of those around you. And if this is you, beware. Beware. You do not care about what Christ cares about. And you do not think his thoughts. Because in truth, listen to me. In truth, you are still dead in your trespasses and sins. And you are alienated from the life of God. Also, many in the church, another problem is that many in the church have reduced the proclamation of the gospel to a sales scheme. The idea is that we get people to make a decision to let Jesus come into their heart and as quickly as possible so that they can be marked as Christians and we can boast in increased numbers and successful church growth. No thought is given ever to look for any evidence of the Spirit's transforming work in their lives. Now the problem with these methods is that they are completely foreign to the New Testament. You won't find that anywhere in the Bible. Did you know that? Nowhere. We've kind of dumbed down the Great Commission to make it easier for us to market Jesus instead of proclaim Jesus. The Bible never encourages, not once, if you can prove it to me that I'm wrong, do so. But the Bible does not encourage us to get people to make a decision for Christ. Did you know that? That's right. It's nowhere in the Bible. Make a decision for Christ? It's like every four years we're voting for who gets to be the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? Guess what? His throne is eternal. He ain't going nowhere. Jesus constant call to the lost was simple. You know what he said? He looked them in the eyes and he said, follow me. Follow me. That means wherever he goes, I go. Whatever he says to do, I obey. Whatever he requires of me, I relinquish it. We are never once told to let Jesus come into our hearts. We are told to follow him and obey him at any and all cost to Therefore, the end goal of being a biblical witness can never be to simply get decisions. Rather, Christ instructs us in Matthew 28 to make disciples, and it's a completely different thing. A decision is inherently an, unca- an unstable thing. Today I choose vanilla, tomorrow I choose chocolate. And how hard can it be? Have you ever thought about this? How hard can it be to get anyone to decide for Jesus and against hell? I mean, if hell is the alternative, you've got a pretty good opportunity. All you got to get to do is get somebody to believe that hell is real, and they'll choose anything over hell. Amen. I'll follow Barney the Purple Dinosaur to stay out of hell. Anything. So being a witness for the church becomes more about portraying hell as hot 
victorious. Jesus never, ever, ever sought a decision. He demanded unconditional surrender. Well, that doesn't sound very nice, Mark. I didn't write the book. He demanded unconditional surrender. I do not believe you will find a single instance in the Gospels of Jesus inviting people to make a decision to follow him. It was always issued as an imperative, as a command. It was never given as an option. Look it up. Peter, James, John, Matthew, the rich young ruler, the man in Matthew, it was Luke 9 rather. All of these were told to follow him. Jesus never said, hey, you know, you, you might want to follow me. If it fits in with your life goals, you know, just come on. We'd love to have you. No, he, he, he'd look at people's eyes and say, follow me. And when they refused, and they did, Jesus made no further appeal. The refusal to answer Christ's call to discipleship is first and foremost rebellious disobedience and an act of treason against the most high God. Another weakness about this whole idea of decision is that decision only requires me to choose between heaven and hell, between Christ and the world. But discipleship, unlike decision, requires me to make a choice between Christ and myself. My preferred idol. Did you know that you are your own preferred idol? Did you know that? Ouch. <laughs> to follow Christ demands the entire renunciation of my rights, my preferences, my very life. Luke 14.33 says, Any of you, don't miss these words, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Right. It's not a matter of negotiating with Jesus, I'll give you this, but I want to hold on to this. No, he says that you are absolutely disqualified from the life of a disciple if you do not surrender everything that you are, just like he's saying, everything that, that you are for everything that he is. And it cannot suggest to you that that's a pretty sweet trade on your part. Pretty lousy trade on God's part, but a sweet trade on yours. Amen. Jesus said that we are to go and make disciples. That's the mission of our going and our proclaiming. When I was growing up, I was taught that first you make a decision for Christ. You pray with a preacher. And then you get disciples so that you become, can become a super Christian. But that is not what the New Testament is proposing. Follow closely. That's not what the New Testament is proposing. Our goal when we begin to talk to people about Jesus is always and from the beginning to disciple them. A disciple seat is essentially a student or a pupil. This requires that we proclaim Jesus, but, but that we, not just that we proclaim Jesus, but that we engage in dialogue with people in the culture. We embrace and celebrate some good things in the culture, and we roundly condemn others. And all of this is, is in order to ultimately demonstrate the saving, redeeming, healing, restoring power of Jesus Christ. In other words, it's all teaching disciples. Why? This is why according to Matthew 10, we search for persons of peace. We'll talk more about that later, but we search for persons of peace. This is people whom the Holy Spirit is in one way or another making ready for our message. But when we find such a person, what are we teaching them? 
We're discipling them too. I want to teach you a word here. It's been used and misused in the church. But we're discipling those people toward conversion. Not merely decision. The work is not over when they pray a prayer with you. The work is not over. We're discipling them towards conversion. Not merely decision. What's the difference? Well, see, a decision is something I can do. It's not necessarily that I need any help from God to make a decision. I simply weigh my alternatives and I make a choice. But conversion is something that only the Holy Spirit can do. Only the Holy Spirit. He convicts people of their need for Jesus. He illuminates the truth of his goodness to them. And he works to transform them into his image. And we're going to be talking a lot about conversion versus decision in the coming months. A decision, listen to this, just to kind of understand this concept on the the very rudimentary level. A decision does not make you a convert. But a convert always chooses or decides for Christ. This is why Jesus gave us an additional, or some additional defining commands in the Great Commission. He said that we should baptize our disciples in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. When the people finally obey Christ's call to discipleship, we baptize them into the family of God as an outward sign of their inward change, their conversion, as it were. This demonstrates that they're dead to sin and alive to God. We then continue the work of teaching them to observe, as Jesus said, or teaching them to obey all that Jesus commanded. Now, how do we do this? We do this by teaching them how to read and interpret the scriptures for themselves. They may need guidance and instruction and patience as they navigate God's word. I mean, don't we all? But our goal is to see converts increasingly and enthusiastically engaging scripture in their lives. Not looking to Oprah for how to, how to live a successful life. Not looking to some self-help book. Not looking to the, the values of the culture. But looking to, to what Christ said in this book about how to navigate life. That's where we're shooting for. This also means that we teach people to walk in accountability to their brothers and sisters in the body of Christ represented in the local church. This is hard, and and you don't hear this a lot because of what I said earlier about trying to make people comfortable and not offending them. But people who refuse to connect and participate in the body of Christ cannot be called a biblical Christian. There are a lot of people that tell tell me, oh, I love Jesus. We talked about this last week. I love Jesus, but ah, I need a church name. It's filled with hypocrites. Yes, come join us because you're just as bad as we are. <laughs> just as bad as we are. There's not, you know, I, I love the term practice what you preach. I said one time from the pulpit, I said, I, I'd love to practice from my, what I preach, but the fact of the matter is, like you, sometimes I'm, I'm having enough trouble believing what I preach, Amen. let alone practicing it. And that's exactly why I need you. I need you. I need you to encourage me and say, come on, Mark, believe it. It's right there in Scripture. Believe it. You can trust what the Lord says. And I say the same to you. I say the same to you. This is not a perfect group. We know that. We know that as soon as we look in the mirror in the morning. But you need us. And guess what? We need you too. We desperately, desperately need you. So we're commanded in Hebrews 
to assemble together. The idea of the saints being together is celebrated in almost every letter in the New Testament. Look it up. Now, I agree that some TV, radio, and internet preachers, some blogs and books may be helpful and good, but we were designed for mutual face-to-face accountability. I need you, you need me, and the Bible makes that absolutely clear. There's no such thing as easy-baked discipleship. There's no such thing as discipleship for dummies. It's always guaranteed. Listen to me. We can get real excited about discipleship here. It's always guaranteed to be messy. It's always guaranteed to be painstakingly so. And it's designed to be messy and slow by God's design. Chew on that for a little bit. But it is well worth it. Well worth it. Let me illustrate. If you and I want to have bologna sandwiches at my house on Thursday afternoon, a pack of $3 paper plates from Walmart will do just fine. They'll do just fine. But if you and I are hosting the Queen of England, maybe a couple of presidents and prime ministers, that simply won't do. It won't do. We'll, we'll rent a grand ballroom somewhere. We'll invest in the finest porcelain and, and crystal that money can buy. We'll hire a world-class gourmet chef and dress in our finest in order to produce the best result for the one we are serving. The analogy is this. Many churches collect quick and meaningless decisions like they're serving bologna on paper. And they're not only serving bologna on paper, they're serving that bologna on paper to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. What a tragic, tragic, just misrepresentation of what he's worth. That's not how the, the, how the apostles viewed the disciples they were producing. Here's what they said. Paul referred to the Galatians and the Galatian churches. He said, My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of, of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. He compared this work of making disciples to having a baby. And all of you ladies can testify that's not a walk in the park. I'll take your word for it. He told the Colossian church that it was Christ they proclaimed, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that they may present everyone mature in Christ. John told his friend Gaius in and, and, uh, John, third John, he said, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children, his disciples, are walking in the truth. See, this discipleship and this business of conversion is a tough road. But isn't the joy of presenting mature, truth-walking disciples who have Christ formed in them, presenting them to God at the final day, isn't that a worthy goal? Isn't it? And never forget, never forget, God has not called you to be some schoolmaster discipler because there is no graduation ceremony scheduled in this life for disciples. Thank you, Jeff. Anyone else want to agree with Jeff this morning? There is no graduation ceremony for disciples. If you are a disciple, you will be a disciple for the rest of your life. But to be a discipler, you must first be a disciple. 
One last thought. Jesus began the Great Commission in Matthew 28 with the assurance of his authority. He ends it with the promise of his presence. And behold, he says, I am with you always to the end of the age. If you choose to take up the call of being a disciple who makes disciples, you may never forget, you must never forget that you are never alone. Where you go, Christ goes. When you are persecuted, he bears the blows with you. When you're rejected, he remains by your side. When you're misunderstood, his spirit will encourage you when you're wrong. And you will be wrong. When you're wrong, he will graciously correct you. But the one thing he will never do is forsake you. Never. So your mission, so our mission, both individually and collectively, our mission as a church is to proclaim the message of Christ Jesus clearly, backed by Christ's authority and assured of his presence in order to make disciples of all nations and to present to him, uh, these disciples to him, as the reward of his suffering in the final day. That's what we're all about. That is the mission of our church. The daunting task indeed, but one which cannot fail because it's the intent of Almighty God to have a people for himself. And it tells us in Romans 8, God is for us. Amen. Who can be against us? Now, I want to ask you a question. I'm going to pray for you and then we'll be done. I want to ask you a quick question. Is there anyone here that says, Ah, you got me? I wouldn't mean it was the Holy Spirit, but you got me. I know that, that there is so much more that, that not just that you have to do. This is not about duty, it's about, like I said earlier, worship and love for the Lord that compels us to speak of Him. There's more that I want to do. Is there anyone here that says, but I've got to be honest with you, Mark, I need an infusion of the Spirit's power to be able to do this. There are people that I work with at, at, at my job or people that I go to school with, people in my neighborhood, and I know it, I see them, I engage with them, I talk with them, but they're going straight to hell. And I want the Holy Spirit to come and empower me to bring the light of Jesus' gospel to them. If that's you, would you just stand right up right now and let me pray for you? Man, God is pleased with the response. He wants to empower you. He wants to empower you to make a difference. Now here's the deal. Here's the deal. If you're asking, if you're asking, he's going to show up. And do not be surprised if this week, this very week, that he opens up a wide door of opportunity for you to proclaim his good news. Remember, you don't have to, you don't have to have it all right. You don't have to have all the words right. All you have to do is love Jesus and tell your story. Tell him about before you knew him and after you knew him. That's all you got to do. Is that a little freeing to know that? That's all you got to do. Great place to start. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we stand before you, God. God, knowing that we can't do any of this without your help. 
God, we know that we don't have it within us. We don't have the desire. We are, we are oblivious to the opportunities that you give us. So God, will you come and help us to view the people around us as potential disciples, followers of Christ. God, not just people that we want to get uh, hurry to the finish line to say a prayer, but people that we want to see come to know you, Lord Jesus. And for their lives to be transformed like so many of our lives have been. And so God, will you just have your way in us, Lord God. God, convict us of our own values and idols that aren't pleasing to you and, and bring disgrace to your name. God, and help us to treasure you above all else. God, to, to become true and spiritual worshipers that the whole world might know. That everyone we know within five minutes knows what our greatest treasure is. Father, help us to go. Help us to boldly proclaim. Help us to bring the lost in, Lord God. Not just to this church or this organization, but to your family, Lord God. God, we plead with you that we would see many people baptized into the family of God this year. God, that they would come and, and, and lay down their old lives and embrace the new life, Lord God. But we need your help. We can't do this on our own. We know it. The Bible says that you'll receive power when the Spirit comes on you and you'll be my witnesses throughout all the earth. So Holy Spirit, right now, just send your Spirit. Send the Spirit to empower us, to direct us, to focus us. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.